0: everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendike.
1: I'm Richard. This is Elizabeth.
0: Yes,
2: I'm Elizabeth. <laughs>
1: And we know most of you guys. Anyhow, we've been here for a while. Um, Hey, since I have the mic, uh, I want to take a second to thank everybody uh, who participated in the Giving Tree for Good Sam. Uh, I work there. And um, it's just awesome that you come alongside Good Samaritan as a church and help with all the gifts. Like the guys really appreciate it. We have a nice dinner Uh, on the 7th, and we give all the gifts out, and it's just a great treat for them. So thanks for your contribution there.
0: Oh, I just want to say we're just so glad to be in family with you. Um, Just so thankful. We just had our, you know, biological family here, and anyway, it was great, but I just love our church family so much. Thank you for being in my life. Okay.
1: So by lighting the candle at Christmas, we help ourselves get ready for the coming of Jesus. Jesus came as a helpless baby, but will return as a mighty king. In lighting the first candle, remember that he alone can quiet desperate souls with hope. The prophet Isaiah declares that our true hope will be in God's Messiah.
0: The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned for to us, a child is born to us. A son is given and the government will be on his shoulders.
1: And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of peace of the greatness of, of his government and peace, there will be no end.
0: Hmm.
1: He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever.
0: And so we say together, we light this candle to remember that Jesus is the true light who fills our souls with hope. <laughs> you have to push the buttons. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, you know. This is how it goes, right? There it is. So let's take a moment to reflect on the places in your soul that feel hopeless and invite Jesus into them.
3: Amen. Let's uh, grab your Bibles, if you have them. There are Bibles in the far corners. I, if, if you missed last week, I moved them to the edges. They're tall tables. And you can open up to Revelation chapter 1. I'm not kidding. I rarely hear pastors preach on Revelation. Revelation. Uh, And I'm doing it at Christmas. I'm just that dumb, I guess. But uh, there's a reason behind that. And it's because uh, the word Advent actually means coming. So at Christmas, we remember and celebrate the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. But there is a second coming of Jesus. He was born into this world. uh, And that's the Christmas story. But he will return. And that is the story on which we base our hope. It is the story that means or makes Christmas meaningful because there is a day where Jesus will return as king. If you want to do an in-depth study on Revelation, that is a difficult and deep dive. I've taken a class. I've read several books. Uh, I want to recommend a few of them to you. The first one I'll put up on the screen this is by Eugene Peterson. It's a little book, and it's very readable. And I couldn't find it because it's so sh- it's like short, which is a not- it's rare for a book on Revelation to not be like this thick. So I'm recommending books that are that are short, and this one. Uh, is something you could read straight through and I think gain some insight from. The second book, I don't have a picture of it on the screen, but it's called The Returning King, not to be confused with The Return of the King. And if you could only read one, maybe read the one by J.R.R. Tolkien. But this is by Verne Poitras, and he's at the Westminster Theological Seminary right here in Philadelphia. This is written like a commentary, but it's not overly academic. And it's understandable. So if you want to read Revelation 15 and be like, what is going on? This will give you a couple pages just to give you a reference point. And then finally, this is probably the resource that I recommend the most. The ESV Study Bible. How many of you guys went out and bought one of these after I recommended it? Anybody? Nobody yet? A few? One or two? how How many of you would like to have this book at home? A few more of you. Steve, this is a gift for you. You're welcome. I don't uh the ESV translation, it's it's a fine translation. I wouldn't recommend it for like reading or devotional work, but it's a little more literal, so it's a little more clunky. But the 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 notes in that Bible are really good. So Merry Christmas, Steve. Enjoy. Uh Revelation 1. I think Using this opening passage gives us an interpretive key to what is going on in this book, and I will make reference to it from time to time. But uh, if you just start reading with me in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. It was the Lord's Day, in other words, a Sunday, and I was worshiping in the Spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, Write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatria, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So remember, this is a book written to real people at a real time, almost 2,000 years ago. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was something like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. If you haven't noticed or caught this yet, this is a, a very artistic, symbolic representation of Jesus, who is often referred to as the Son of Man in the book of Revelation, but also in other places in the New Testament. Uh, his head was and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead, but he, but he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I, this is important, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both things that are now happening and the things that will happen. And so one of the mistakes I think that happens when people try to read Revelation is they only think of it as a future predictive blueprint that they will try to impose onto a timeline. And they'll do things like try to predict who the Antichrist is and who the beast is. The problem with that is, and if you want to go that route, is that you'll most likely be wrong. <clears throat> the first prediction of the Antichrist came within the first uh, 300 years of the church. Arius was called the Antichrist. You go down Pope, Pope, uh, Gregory I was identified as the Antichrist. Joseph Stalin was identified as the Antichrist. Uh, President Nixon was identified as the Antichrist. Lyndon Baines Johnson was identified as the Antichrist. Fred uh, FDR, like uh, JFK, people have in almost every generation looked at a person that they either held as a real enemy or a perceived political threat and said, I can see this person in the pages of Revelation. And I think that that is very incomplete. One of the things we'll find is that there are spiritual forces that were at work at the time of Jesus that are still at work today and have been at work from then to now and will be at work until they are finally defeated But to try and draw all these events onto a timeline and say this uh, represents the the downfall of the Soviet Union or this represents the president now in the past or future will lead you perhaps down the wrong track. What I want you to notice here is that it says though that I am revealing to you things that are now happening and the things that will happen and I think these are Overlapping terms. Again, not to draw on a timeline. This happened in the past, this will happen in the future, but these are realities that are true now, have been true, and will be true. So if you guys uh, remember the scene from The Lord of the Rings, it's been way too long since I made a reference. I mean, it's almost been five minutes now. (laughs) But uh, Frodo ends up in La Florian with Galadriel, the elf. Some of you know exactly what I'm saying and other people just tuned out. But there's a pool and Galadriel pours some water into a pool and says, this pool will show you many things, things that were, things that are, and some things that have not yet come to pass. And so as you read Revelation, I want you to think about what is happening not as something that will just happen into the future, but as spiritual realities that have been made known symbolically to the reader. And so the subject, which will often point us to the day of the Lord, has present bearing on us today because it shapes the way we live, it shapes the way we worship, it shapes the way we engage with the world, and our community uh, known as the church. And so I want to show you a little video from the Bible project that talks about the day of the Lord, which as the Bible project will explain is one of the main themes of revelation. But again, I think, that, I think the end times started about 2000 years ago. Don't put that on Twitter or anything, okay? I think the end time started about 2000 years ago, uh, not because I think Jesus came back and we missed it. There are people who believe that. I don't think that matches with my experience of the, uh, the reality of sin and evil in the world very well. But Jesus said, before this generation passes away, all these things that I am saying, which includes like the Day of the Lord, apocalyptic, revelation-type imagery will come to pass. And so here at the Vineyard, we use the kingdom language as it is now already and has not yet come, and this is a tension that we live in. So I believe that we are living in the end times, not because things are worse now than they ever have been or because things are better now than they ever have been. Both might be true to a degree but because of what Jesus said about the coming of his kingdom. And so now the Bible project video.
4: The day of the Lord. It's a phrase in the Bible that religious people use, usually when talking about the end of the world.
2: Yeah, things like Armageddon or the apocalypse. You might be familiar with this image of Jesus returning on a white horse. He's got a sword to bring final
4: judgment. And everyone wants to know, how will it all go down?
2: So a lot of these images come from the last book of the Bible, but to understand them, you have to go back to the first book.
4: When the story begins, we watch God create an amazing world. And then he gives humans power to rule over it on his behalf.
2: But the humans are tempted by this mysterious unhuman character who offers them a promise. You could define good and evil on your own terms and put yourselves in God's place.
4: Which is what they do. And the resulting stories are about the broken relationships and violence that results.
2: Yeah, this promise creates huge problems. Now everyone has to protect themselves and fight for survival, and they're all using death as this weapon to gain power.
4: It all leads to a story about the building of the city of Babylon. Or in Hebrew, Babel, everyone comes
2: together to elevate themselves
4: to the place of God. And God
2: knows how devastating this could be. A whole culture redefining good and evil as if
4: they are God. So God confuses their language and scatters them.
2: Now from here on, Babylon becomes like an icon in the biblical story. It's an image that represents humanity's corporate rebellion against God.
4: And the next time we see it is in the story of ancient Egypt.
2: Yeah, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, he feels threatened by these immigrant Israelites. He starts killing all of the boys, enslaving the rest.
4: And this is really
2: evil? Yeah, Egypt's like this bigger, badder Babylon. They take care of themselves at the expense of others by redefining evil as good. And so God turns Pharaoh's evil back on him. His pride drives him forward and he's swallowed
4: up by death. Now after this great deliverance, the Israelites sing a song about how God is their warrior who liberated them from evil.
2: And the Israelites referred to this moment as the day.
4: The day they were rescued from a corrupt human system.
2: And every year since then, the Israelites have celebrated the day of their liberation with this symbolic meal of a sacrificial lamb, it's called Passover.
4: Eventually, Israel comes into its own land, have their own kings, and they face new enemies.
2: So that past day of the Lord, celebrated every Passover, begins to generate hope that God will bring the day
4: again to save
2: Israel from new
4: threats. Now, out in the hills was a sheep herder named Amos.
2: He was appointed by God as a prophet to announce shocking news to Israel that God was bringing another day of the Lord against his enemies and this time the target is Israel. What? Sadly, Israel's leaders had also
4: redefined good and evil for themselves,
2: resulting in corruption and violence.
4: So God's people have become like Babylon, the oppressed become oppressors, Babylon seems like a trap no one can escape.
2: And so the day of the Lord comes upon Israel. They are conquered, taken captive into exile. And from then on, Israel suffered under the rule of continuous oppressive empires.
4: This is the story Jesus was born into.
2: Yeah, in his day, the oppressive empire over Israel is Rome.
4: So, is Jesus going to confront Rome, take him out? Well, no. Jesus saw the real enemy
2: as that mysterious, unhuman evil. The evil that's lured Babylon, Egypt, Rome, Israel. All humanity has given in to evil's promise of power. This is what Jesus resisted alone in the wilderness when he was tempted to exploit his power for self-interest.
4: But he didn't. And after that, he started to confront
2: the effects of evil on others. Yeah, he started saying that he was going to Jerusalem for Passover for a final showdown to confront the evil of Israel and Rome by dying. Dying? I mean, that feels like losing. Jesus was going to let evil exhaust all of its power on him using its only real weapon, death. Jesus knew that God's love and life were even more powerful, that he could overcome evil by becoming the Passover lamb, giving his life in an act of love. And something changed that day. When Jesus defeated evil, he opened up a new way for anyone to escape from Babylon and discover this new kind of power,
4: this new way of being human. Okay, so something changed. But the power of evil is still alive and well, and we keep building new versions of Babylon.
2: Right, and so the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, points to the future and final day of the Lord. It's when God's kingdom comes to confront Babylon the Great, this image of all the corrupt nations of the world.
4: Yeah, this is it. Armageddon, final judgment. How is Jesus going to finish off evil?
2: Well, that's not how you'd expect. In the Revelation, the victorious Jesus is symbolized by a sacrificial bloody lamb. And then when Jesus does arrive in the end, riding his white horse to confront evil, he's bloody before the battle even starts.
4: Pre-bloodied? That's a strange
2: image. Yeah, it's because Jesus isn't out for our blood. Rather, he overcame with his blood when he died for his enemies. And the sword is in his mouth. It's a symbol of Jesus' authority to define good and evil and hold us accountable when he brings final justice once and for
4: all. And so, in the meantime, the day of the Lord is an invitation to resist the culture of Babylon. And it's a promise that God will one day free our world from corruption and
2: bring about the new things that he has in store.
3: So I hope that's helpful. In many ways, I have been setting the stage. I will keep setting the stage for the book of Revelation uh, for a few more minutes, and then we'll, I mean, we'll keep going throughout the month. But I want to enter into that world, as the Bible Project said, the world that Jesus was born into, where Rome is the superpower It is a superpower unlike the world had ever seen. They have come into that position because of their superior military strength and strategy. Rome is the name of the empire, but Rome is also the name of a city. Rome is a city built on seven hills, and Rome is sometimes referred to as a beautiful woman. The most likely emperor during the writing of Revelation in my mind is the Emperor Domitian, and we have a picture of him right here. You can see what he's holding in his right hand. Can you tell what that is? It is a scroll. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, the scroll imagery is an important one. Emperor Domitian here is holding a scroll that only he is worthy to open. It is a scroll that contains the rights of the emperor because the emperor stands above every other authority on earth, which is probably what he's got there in his left hand. The emperor Domitian is the one who was probably the most intense when it came to persecuting Christians. By this time, the number of Christians were growing and the threat that Christians uh, met the empire with was mainly that they declared that Jesus was Lord and that Caesar was not. But there were also some social constructs that Christians challenged, one of which was to care for the poor and the oppressed, whereas the Roman value was to dominate and exploit them. The way that Christians viewed sex was also very unique and a very, uh, like just, sexualized Roman culture, and so that felt confrontational and dangerous. And so as we read through the book of Revelation, know that there are Christians who are facing intense social pressure and even uh, like persecution like none of us have ever known. This is the time where gladiators were... Oftentimes Christians. And so the blood of Christians was flowing. This is after the Emperor Nero, where, after, where the, the the city of Rome burns, and he blames it on the Christians. And so like there's there's just a lot of negative attention. Nero, who was a couple of emperors before Domitian, was known for lighting Christians on fire at his dinner parties. So not a fun time to live if you were a Christian, but you held on to this hope that was being communicated to you in symbolic language in the book of Revelation. So open up to Revelation 17, and you might be thinking, why are we doing Revelation 17 before Revelation 4, 7, 9? Well, Revelation 17 is somewhat intense, and the closer we get to actual Christmas, the stranger it will be, the weirder it will be to read. So buckle up, <clears throat> there. There's so much to cover, and I I don't have the the corner on knowledge when it comes to the book of Revelation. It is a deep well, and so I come at it with a little bit of humility, but uh, I hope that it accomplishes something to help us live out the way and love of Jesus in our cultural moment. Verse 17, verse 1, one of the seven angels who had poured out the seven bowls came over and spoke to me. Come with me, he said, and I will show you the judgment that is going to come on the great prostitute who rules over many waters. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, and the people who belong to this world have been made drunk by the wine of her immorality. And uh, the NLT translates this word immorality, but in the Greek it is pornos, pornos. And so probably a better translation is the word sexual immorality, which often gets linked to the idea of idolatry. So when the people of Israel would worship other idols, they would be called adulterers because they were cheating on God. They were breaking the bonds of their commitment to their creator. And so as I kind of began to mention, sex comes up a lot. When you're talking about the kingdom, it comes up a lot in the book of Revelation when it when the New Testament talks about citizenship in heaven. Sex is one of the main themes because sex was a cultural flashpoint for people living in a culture that really had a very low view of the body and, and had the view of sex that it was primarily for pleasure. So the body would be eventually disposed of. And so sex was just something like eating good food. The more, the better. Uh, and with whoever makes you feel good about you. You guys have heard of Eros. Uh, that's one of the words for love. Eros was everywhere. And I have a just a little quote from John Mark Comer from a podcast he's doing called Live No Lies that I just want to read because the, the cultural context and one of the reasons that the topic of sex feels so close is because our, our culture is, again, becoming very secular. And so here he says people are trying to follow Jesus in an increasingly secular culture where sex and gender are the predominant issues. Their Christian sex ethic used to be weird, but now it's seen as dangerous and an example of bigotry or oppression that can be a hard, that can be a hard social stigma to carry and a lot of emotional weight for those who love Jesus. And so the reason that the sexual immorality in particular, uh, of the world and of this, the whole image is one of a prostitute is used is just because of the, the way that Roman culture perceived it. Whereas Christian culture looked at the body and saw a temple that the Holy Spirit dwelt in. The Christian community looked at a body that would be resurrected like the body of Jesus the followers of Jesus looked at sex and said, this is a deeply spiritual act for which God has created purpose and context for. And so let's keep reading. The angel took me in the spirit into the wilderness. And there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that had seven heads and ten horns and blasphemies against God were written all over it. Blasphemies are proclamations basically about how I am God or uh, I'm defining good and evil, kind of like the Bible Project video talked about. Uh, they're very irreverent to the true God. The woman wore purple, verse four, and scarlet clothing and beautiful jewelry made of gold and precious gems and pearls. In her hand, she held a gold goblet of full of obscenities and the impurities of horror of her pornos. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. And I stared at her in complete amazement. Why are you so amazed? The angel asked. I will tell you the mystery of this woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns on which she sits. The beast you saw was once alive, but isn't now, and yet he will soon come up of the bottomless pit. And this beast is a parody of Jesus, who was, is, and is to come. This beast is like, parody isn't, uh, 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 parody isn't quite the right word, but it's like, it's a foil. It's like the anti-Jesus, and that's why this language is being used He will soon come up out of the bottomless pit and go to eternal destruction. And the people who belong to this world, whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made, will be amazed at this beast who had died. This calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. Remember what I said about Rome? There's some imagery here being used. Uh, They also represent seven kings. Five kings already have fallen. The sixth now reigns. And the seventh is yet to come, but his reign will be brief. The scarlet beast that was, but is no longer as the eighth king. He is like the other seven and he too is headed for destruction. The 10 horns of the beast are the 10 kings who have not yet risen to power. They will be appointed to their kingdoms for one brief moment to reign with the beast. They will all agree to give him their power and authority. This is in a way just speaking to the temporary nature of the worldly kings who come one after the next, after the next. In contrast, again, to the rule of Jesus, the king, who rules how long? Forever and ever. Together they will go to war against the lamb, but the lamb will defeat them because he is Lord of all lords and king of all kings and his called and chosen and faithful ones will be with him. Then the angel said to me, the waters where the prostitute is ruling represents masses of people of every nation and language. The scarlet beast and his ten horns all hate the prostitute. They will strip her naked, eat her flesh, and burn her remains with fire. For God has put a plan into their minds, a plan that will carry out his purposes. This is an interesting insight into the nature of evil, how where the woman and the monster, the beast, were once working together, they turn on each other. And that is the nature of evil. It, it eventually like, defeats itself because it's so... Uh, full of self-interest and power that, well, can I just use another Lord of the Rings reference? There can only be one Lord of the Ring and he does not share power. And this woman you saw in your vision represents the great city that rules over the kings of the world. After all this I saw another angel come down from heaven with great authority and the earth and the earth grew bright with his splendor. He gave a mighty shout. Babylon has fallen, that great city is fallen, she has come home become a home for demons, she is a hideout for every foul spirit, a hideout for every foul vulture, and every foul and dreadful animal, for all the nations have fallen because of the wine of her passionate immorality. The kings of the world have committed adultery with her, because of her desires for extravagant luxury the merchants of the world have grown rich. Then I heard another voice calling from heaven, come away from her, my people. Do not take part in her sins or you will be punished with her for her sins are piled up as high as heaven and God remembers her evil deeds. Uh, It it goes on. But basically this angel takes a big rock and throws it into the sea to represent how the city, uh, the beast, and the prostitute will not last and will fall under judgment. Merry Christmas. <laughs> that's, uh, that's some fun reading, isn't it? Um, a couple of themes that I want to draw from this passage. The first is, or the first thing I wanna do, I don't know if my slides are in order or not, Chris, but let's look at this chart, which actually comes from this book to just kind of draw out the symbolism of the prostitute uh, and the beast. So the the beast is this representative of, of power and authority that wields fear so that we avoid pain at any cost. This is like hard military power, uh, authority, wealth that is used to employ. uh, and, And these are forces that the emperor certainly would have used. Domitian certainly would have employed in the Colosseum. These are realities that kings and emperors and world leaders have also grabbed onto. There's like a spiritual power behind what the Caesars were doing, and and still, too, to this day, the rulers rulers of the world often employ. The prostitute represents the lust and luxury that seduces so that we might pursue pleasure at any cost. This is the culture of Rome. This is the extravagant, uh, you know, free sex, Wealth, opulent wealth, luxury at the expense of the poor. These two forces have been at work in the world since the Tower of Babel, since the Babylonian Empire, but symbolically in Rome, and continues to compete for our hearts with uh, the one true king, Jesus. Jesus. One of the things that Revelation is trying to show us and remind us, and this is something the angel said, is, is in drawing us to repentance, it wants to reveal the fact that we are worshiping. We are actually worshiping things other than Jesus when it might not feel like it. So coming to church, we sing songs and we read the Bible and maybe, you know, we pray, you you listen to worship music at home, you spend some time in silence centering your heart on God. Like these things feel like worship. It's very obvious. But there are lots of other things that we do throughout our week that is also worship. The merchants probably didn't know that they were worshiping the beast when they were making these deals with Rome. All they knew is that they were getting rich because Rome wanted to buy their stuff. Having... Uh, This lust for pleasure at the moment doesn't feel like worship. But if you pull back the curtain, what Revelation is trying to say is oftentimes it is, even though we don't know it. So James K.A. Smith, uh, who's a professor at Calvin University, puts it this way. He says, worship is not just something we do. It is something that does something to us. So when you come on a Sunday to worship, it's not just something you do. It's actually shaping your heart to build your life on certain truths, or maybe better put, a person that you want to become like. But this as Revelation is teaching us, is not the only way we worship. When you watch Netflix, it is not just something you do. Something is being done to you. It wants to compete with Jesus as the king of your life. It is bringing a narrative. It is projecting values. And and it's doing it to all of us. You don't realize how much influence culture has in your life that's true for all of us. The reason I know that is every once in a while I think I notice in myself like holy cow the cultural messages that are coming through media, social media, Netflix, movies, newspapers, news stations I've bought in wholesale so that when I read the Bible and look at the person of Jesus I can I hardly believe it's in the book. How could that be in the book? Because the, like media, and again, I don't think media is bad. Remember Isaiah 60? It belongs to God. And when it's put in its proper place, it's beautiful and it's designed to glorify God. But there's also a spiritual power that is trying to deceive all of us. And Revelation gives it a face or a couple of faces in this case, a prostitute and a monster. When you go shopping, it is not just something you do, something is being done to you. When you pick up your phone and start to scroll, it is not just something you do, it is something that is done to you. And so we are reminded to engage in community and practices that shape us intentionally into the ways of Jesus that's that's actually why you're here i don't know if that's why you thought you you came but that's why you're here you're here to be shaped into the ways of Jesus and so i want to talk about what this even means like this this really scary and upsetting passage about the, some of the dark spiritual forces in the world by talking about what prophetic literature is designed to accomplish. So why are we doing this series? What is Revelation Ultimate about? What is the purpose? We have to think about prophetic literature as a whole, which Isaiah is full of prophetic literature. And it's not only, again, about predicting the future. It's about speaking to people in their current context. So the first thing, Prophetic literature reveals the true nature of the world and speaks truth into it. I've Been talking about this. It pulls back the veil to help you realize and see that some of the things in the world that we think are benign are, or harmless, there's actually spiritual forces behind. The book of Revelation is designed to remind the Christians in their time and place 2000 years ago that engaging in Roman values and culture is actually worshiping the beast and it's going to put you on a path to destruction. The message of revelation for people living in our time and place is a reminder that if our main source of input, our main source of formation is not God and his word, that that's going to set us up onto a path Of destruction. It pulls back the veil to show what's going on underneath the surface. The second thing, it's a call to repent and a call to worship. The book of Revelation and other prophetic literature is not primarily intended for us to take and to judge other people with. Prophetic literature is designed to have us turn back to God where we've strayed. So it is not Ultimately, a word of you are condemned, but a word of return to Jesus. Notice how your heart worships fear and power and lust and sex and stuff, and turn your worship back to Jesus. It is fundamentally a shaping. And so, Allison is actually going to talk about Revelation 19 next week, but you know what's in Revelation 19? This is one of the happy passages, by the way. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot of chapters that are, are pretty scary. But after this, Revelation 19, after this, I heard what sounded like a vast crowd in heaven shouting, or maybe singing. Praise the Lord. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. His judgments are true and just. He has punished the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. He has avenged the murder of his servants. And again, the voices rang out, praise the Lord. The smoke from that city ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living beings fell down and worshiped God who was sitting on the throne. They cried out, Amen, praise the Lord. And from the throne came a voice that said, Praise our God, all his servants, all who fear him, all who honor or revere him, from the least to the greatest. And then you end up with uh, the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's it's a contrast, Revelation 17 and 18. And the worship of the beast and the the fate of the beast contrast to the fate of the people who worship God, Not, not destruction, but a wedding banquet, a wedding banquet of the lamb, the wedding banquet of Jesus. And so it's a call to repent and a call to worship. Thirdly, is it brings hope to people who are desperate. It's hard for us to read Revelation and think, oh, this is good news. But that's because all of us are richer than almost everybody else in the world who have ever lived. (laughs) And we've got like a pretty good life. We don't know persecution like the first and second century Christians did or Christians who are living in countries outside of this one where we like have such wonderful freedoms. To worship like we do. But if you are in a place of desperation, if your life is crumbling, if you are grieving the death of someone you love, if you are really concerned about the moral fabric of our world and think that it's, it's unraveling, the message of revelation is it may seem like the beast sits on the throne, It may seem like the prostitute is in charge, but you know what? That's not true. Who sits on the throne? In Revelation 4, it is Jesus who sits on the throne, and he will guide history toward an end that is beautiful and glorious. And he so wants us to stop trying to define good and evil for ourselves, to stop worshiping, things other than himself he wants you at the party and so for those of us who can remember that actually spiritually we're all desperate spiritually we're all bankrupt spiritually we need Jesus to return and for some of us maybe now maybe soon we just we ache for the second advent of Jesus this becomes the foundation of our hope so let's stand. Come Holy Spirit. your love right now. As we repent and as we turn back to you and as we say in our hearts, Jesus, you are the true king, we ask that you would form us through our worship to become more like you we sing your praises we we pray for your return to set all things right to bring justice to bring healing and so holy spirit come
0: thanks again for listening to the podcast of the vineyard church chester springs we hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.